Welcome to a new study that we are beginning this evening on the kingdom of God. When I ask you, what is the kingdom of God? How would you define it? Somebody speak up and give me a definition of the kingdom of God. A spiritual kingdom, okay. Anything else? We have people nodding in agreement. The world and everything? His, yeah, his elect people, the church, in other words. The angels would be part of the kingdom of God. You know, as we try and define it, I mean, first of all, we think about, well, what is a kingdom? Uh, And so we think in terms of kingdoms of this earth that we might think about, uh, you know, nation states, or uh, we think back to, you know, ancient times or medieval times and and the kingdom that would have been ruled over by a king. And so, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary just simply defines a kingdom as a country, a state or territory ruled by a king. So they're defining a kingdom as the actual domain, the physical geographic territory that is ruled over by a monarch. But uh, you know, when we begin to think about the kingdom of God, uh, we have to define it a little bit differently. And so uh, some of the definitions that you might find are the spiritual reign or authority of God. Uh, and so we think, okay, this is a, a spiritual kingdom. And so this is God's ruling spiritually over his people, over his creation. Or we might define it as the rule of God or Christ in a future age. That was one definition I found. And so we think about, well, the kingdom to come, the kingdom in eternity, or uh, you know, the, the eschatological kingdom. John Piper, Pastor John Piper, defines the kingdom of God as the reign of God, specifically not the geographic realm or the people itself, but simply God's sovereignty being exerted. That's how he defines it. And he bases that uh, on a passage in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 103, verse 9, which says, sorry, 19, verse 19, which says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Uh, And so God's rule, his kingdom, is over all things that he has made. And so as he exerts his sovereignty over them, uh, that is the definition that he gives. Uh, I tried to find a definition from R.C. Sproul. I actually found a lengthy article on the kingdom of God, and he never actually gave a succinct definition of it uh, because it's, difficult to define. It's difficult to kind of wrap our minds around uh, what it is. Hadassah, please go in my office in my briefcase and get my copy of the confession. I meant to have that up here with me. Uh, So as we're trying to define uh, the, the kingdom of God, one thing that we know for certain is that a kingdom has a ruler. There's a monarch who rules over it. And so obviously in the name, the kingdom of God we recognize that God uh, is the king. But more specifically than that, uh, we would say that Christ uh, is the king who reigns over this kingdom. And so in our confession in chapter 22 of Christ the Mediator, uh, we see our confession identifying Christ as a king. And so it says the office, this office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ who is 
the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. So that's an interesting uh, phrase there. We've identified Christ as the monarch who rules over this kingdom, and it identifies the kingdom as the church of God. He is the king of the church of God. So there, the, the confession is kind of equating the church with this kingdom of God. And, and so what do we think? Christ's reign over the church, over the kingdom, what does that consist of? Well, the, the next paragraph in the confession uh, breaks down these three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And regarding uh, his kingship, it says that we are in need of his kingship uh, because of our averseness and utter inability to return to God. So because of our fallenness, because of our depravity and our inability and our aversion to returning to God, we need Christ as king. It says we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. So we need the reign of Christ over our hearts to draw us to God, to reign, rule over us, to also deliver us to protect us, preserve us, and to preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. So in the previous paragraph, the confession had kind of equated the kingdom with the church, but now here they're acting like Christ ruling over his people in the church is preserving us for a kingdom that's not yet here. So the confession even is slightly got some tension there in how it would be defining uh, the kingdom of God. When we look at uh, the, cate- the Baptist Catechism that was written in an effort to help explain some of the things in the confession. Question 29 is this, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And so you can kind of see uh, the idea of a king that would have been in the minds of the reformers in that period in history as they thought about a king, uh, you know, a lord over an area uh, who had subjects and that king or that lord had a responsibility to his subjects uh, to defend them against their common enemies, uh, to protect them, uh, to rule over them, uh, and also he is subduing us to himself as king. Uh, which we need because we are inherently rebellious. But as we ask ourselves, well, what is uh, the extent of Christ's domain then? How do we define this? The the confession has called it the church, but has also talked about a kingdom that is yet to come. Uh, So how do we define it? Well, this verse that I read previously from Psalm 103, verse 19, said that his kingdom rules over all. So his kingdom is over all things, over all of his creation. There are some other verses we could look at that would give us some more specifics. Uh, Paul, would you turn to Psalm chapter 22, please? And could I get somebody else to turn to Daniel chapter 4? Psalm 22, would you read verse 28? For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. So the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And so here we're looking at uh, the nations or the kingdoms of men on this earth. The kingdom is Lord's, and he rules over 
the kingdoms of men, over the nations of men. To somebody in Daniel chapter 4, would you read verse 17, please? Okay, so this is Nebuchadnezzar, actually, the king of Babylon, who is, has come to this realization that God, the God of Daniel, the God of these Hebrews that are captives in his uh, kingdom, this God actually reigns over the realms of men. And so he raises up who he will as a king. He puts people down just as he did with Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, he's identifying God as the ultimate king is the ultimate authority uh, over these things. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, if I could get somebody to turn there, uh, and if someone else would turn to Psalm chapter 99, please. Somebody let me know when they're in Daniel chapter 7. We can let Brian read. Daniel chapter 7. Would you read verse 27, please? For the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So, the kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So, we can already see that God's kingdom is unlike uh, the kingdoms of men over which he rules. As they rise and fall, they come and go. But God's kingdom is everlasting. And it says that the kingdom will be given to the saints. It will be given to God's people. And so this is something that we see throughout uh, the, the scriptures that we will inherit the kingdom. That's the language that we will see in the New Testament. Can someone read Psalm 99 verse 1? Lauren? Okay, so God reigns. He sits between the cherubim. He is seated in heaven. His throne is in heaven. And the people of the earth are to tremble before him because he is the, the ultimate uh, king who reigns over all things. Now, here's a passage that you are uh, likely very familiar with from Philippians uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. It says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, we're speaking about Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Christ has been exalted by the Father. He has been given the, a name that is above every name so that every knee will bow to him in heaven, in earth, and below the earth. So we're talking about all of the realms, the heavenly realm, the, the physical realm of earth, and even uh, what we might call hell or Hades, according to the scripture, that everyone will bow the knee to Christ, bow at his name, that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Think about that. The souls 
of those who are sent to hell because of their rebellion against God, the angels who are rebelled against God, the demons who are consigned to hell for eternity, will confess that Jesus is Lord. They won't like it, but they'll confess that he is Lord. So his kingdom extends everywhere. You know, as Job said, where could I go to hide from the Lord? He, he is there no matter where we go. This language in Philippians uh, actually comes out of Isaiah where this exact same thing is said uh, by God himself. Uh, in chapter 45 of Isaiah, God says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So God reigns, he rules, everyone will bow to him, every tongue will confess, and he says this should be a cause for us turning to him for salvation. So this is the extent of Christ's kingdom, uh, that it extends over all things. But then, interestingly, uh, if we turn to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, we'll see in Ephesians a couple of verses that talk about Christ's reign or his rule. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things, to the church. So God has put all things under Christ's feet. That, that signifies that he is in authority over them. He rules over them. He has given him to be the head over all things to the church or for the sake of the church. And if we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, this is the section where he begins to address husbands and wives. He tells us in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands. So here, Christ is identified as being the head of the church, and the church in submission to him. That would make Christ the king and the church his subjects, the subjects of his kingdom, who inhabit his kingdom. But in Revelation chapter 15, it tells us that there are, seven, there are angels in heaven with seven plagues. And he says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So here are saints who are worshiping, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Uh, so we're identifying the Lamb here as the King of the saints. So we can see there's a sense in which God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is said to be over all things. Uh, over all of his creation, spiritual, physical, 
everything. But there's another sense in which Christ's kingdom seems specifically uh, to be over the church, over his saints. And so we might say, I'm going to use the board a little bit, um, that we, we have the kingdom of God. And we think about who, his, who his, is under his authority as king. And we would say all people, right? All people are under his authority, are subject to his rule. But in some special way, the church is some special expression of his kingdom. Uh, and so we have this tension that we see in Scripture between saying that God rules over all things, over all of his creation. And we think about this even in uh, the New Testament when we see Christ speaking to the storm. And the disciples say, wow, even the wind and the waves obey him. So it's not just humans or angels. It's even his creation, nature, obeys him, is subject to him as its king. And yet in some special way, the church or his saints are uh, the subjects of his kingdom and said to inherit the kingdom at some point. So as we think about all of this, I want to briefly review mentions of the kingdom throughout Scripture. The first mention of a kingdom in the Scriptures comes in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, uh, God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He has brought them to Mount Sinai. Uh, God is speaking to Moses on the mountain. And so in Exodus chapter 19, God speaking to the people through Moses uh, tells Moses to say these things uh, to the children of Israel. And one of the things he tells them to say is this in verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So this is the first time the word kingdom is used in the scriptures. And he tells uh, Jacob's descendants, the children of Israel, they will be a kingdom uh, for God. They will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so, I mean, just think about how interesting that is. A kingdom made up entirely of priests. And if you think about uh, those ancient religions and the function that a priest served, uh, offering sacrifices to the God that they worshipped, Uh, mediating between that God and the common people. And God says his entire people will be a kingdom populated with priests. And so this is is the first mention of the kingdom. But then the the next mention of of a kingdom of any kind doesn't come until we get to Numbers chapter 32. We get to Numbers chapter 32 and we see this mention of the use of the word kingdom. So Moses gave to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities within the borders, the cities of the surrounding country. So here, obviously, the word kingdom is referring to a geographical region um, that had belonged to a particular men who ruled over it, and that has been taken away from those Canaanite kings and now given to a couple of the tribes of Israel uh, as they're figuring out the allotment that will be theirs in the land. And so that, that the word kingdom there is used to refer to that geographical area where these men would reign. 
The first time we see uh, the term, the kingdom of Israel, is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, verse 28, Saul has uh, disobeyed God, and so Samuel is speaking with him. And so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Uh, And so this is the first use of the phrase, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, And so God is going to take it away from Saul. Now Saul will remain king for many years after this, but uh, God has decreed that uh, he would, his offspring would not sit on the throne. And so Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, uh, were a kingdom uh, that God had created. But as we move through the scriptures, uh, we begin to see uh, this idea of the kingdom uh, take on a larger meaning. And so uh, we've already read some verses in the Psalms, but if we look at Psalm chapter 145, uh, we'll see a description of uh, the kingdom God's kingdom. It's referred to as your kingdom by by David here. Uh, And so in Psalm 145, beginning in verse 11, we read, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Uh, And so Here we have a reference to the kingdom. It's not no longer the kingdom of Israel belonging to the descendants of Jacob, but rather it's the kingdom of God belonging to God. Uh, And it's glorious, it's majestic, it is everlasting, uh, reigning and continuing as dominion endures throughout all generations. And so we can clearly see that there's a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men, such as was mentioned in Numbers, the kingdom of Sihon or Og, These were temporary kingdoms that were taken from them and given to someone else. God's kingdom endures forever. And so we see that continually uh, throughout the scriptures. Uh, There in the book of Daniel, which we read uh, one verse from already that talked about uh, God's kingdom. But if we turn to Daniel chapter 7, there are a couple of verses here worth reading. Daniel chapter 7. They get someone to read verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Okay, so we have this vision that, that uh, is a vision of the Son of Man, which is a term that Christ will take to himself, coming to the Ancient of Days, which would be a vision of the Father. And the Father gives to Christ dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people of the world, all the nations, uh, would serve him. His dominion lasts forever. His kingdom is everlasting. It will not pass away. It is the one kingdom which shall not be destroyed. Because remember, Daniel's having visions of kingdoms of the earth, Babylon and Persia and all these, and they're temporary. Rome, they they rule, 
uh, vast areas of the earth, vast populations, but they're temporary. They don't last forever, and yet God's kingdom is unlike those in that it lasts and endures forever. And we've previously read uh, here in Daniel where it talked about uh, the kingdom being given to uh, the saints or received by the saints of God. If we flip over to a little tiny book, if we can find it, Obadiah, comes right after Amos. Obadiah. Verse 21. I get somebody to read Obadiah, verse 21. Okay, so here we're talking about Mount Zion. The mountains of Esau, which you know we've been studying Genesis and seeing that Esau leaves uh, Israel and goes over to Seir and is in the mountains there. And so we're talking about these two lines of descent, Jacob and Esau, and it says the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And so this seems to be some sort of prophetic thing, speaking about something that will happen in the future. And so again, we have this tension that God's kingdom endures forever, he reigns over all things, and yet there's some point in the future when something about his kingdom becomes more concrete, more real than it presently is. As we get to the New Testament now, let me ask you this. I've been using the phrase, the kingdom of God. Are there any other things that you would fill in if I simply wrote the kingdom of what would you put there other than God? Heaven. heaven, the kingdom of heaven. What else? Christ. The kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is a huge one in the New Testament. Interestingly, it's used over 30 times only in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the only one who uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He uses it almost exclusively. Matthew only mentions the kingdom a couple of times without calling it the kingdom of heaven. I think he only calls it the kingdom of God once, uh, and he refers to the kingdom uh, a couple of times without specifying the kingdom of. So if we turn to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist has come. There's been uh, you know, a period of uh, prophetic quietness. We haven't had a prophet In several hundred years, uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene. Uh, He begins to preach out in the wilderness, uh, to baptize. And what is he preaching? Matthew chapter 3, if someone would read verses 1 and 2. Okay, so John is preaching, he's calling people to repentance, and he is telling them the kingdom, of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's nearby, it's close. It is not here yet, but it is coming. Prepare for it. And so John is preparing the way for Christ, and Christ comes on the scene. And so if you flip over in chapter 4, Jesus has... Uh, appeared. He has encountered John. He's gone into the wilderness and, and Satan 
has tempted him. He has come through that temptation successfully and begun his ministry in Galilee. And we're told in verse 17 of chapter 4, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's saying the same thing that John did, calling people to repentance in preparation for the arrival of the kingdom. And so there's some sense in which the kingdom was not yet there. And so we know we had the kingdom of Israel, which was governed by God. In one sense, it was the kingdom of God. Uh, but they had gone into captivity in Babylon. They had come back to the land under the Persian king Cyrus, but now Rome rules. And so they're subjugated to Rome. Uh, and so John and Jesus are preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and even calling it the kingdom of heaven has some implications, doesn't it? It's a heavenly kingdom. It's not a kingdom of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. Uh, as Jesus begins his preaching ministry, uh, we have the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And several times uh, here in the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus will say things like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus begins to define uh, for us in his preaching ministry who it is uh, who will enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of heaven, who it is who will possess the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 5, verse 19, though, Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so we have uh, certain ethics of the kingdom uh, that are coming into play. And there seems to be, again, this hint of something future about this. He shall be called in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the kingdom will come. So in, if we flip over to Matthew chapter 8, again, Jesus is speaking. Uh, he is dealing with a Roman uh, centurion at this point. And he says, after this Roman soldier expresses faith, so we think about the kingdom. The Jews were very familiar with this idea of the kingdom. They expected the promised Messiah to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so Jesus here is dealing with a Roman, one of their oppressors. And this Roman has shown trust and faith in Christ. And so in verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, there seems to be this future aspect of the kingdom. Uh, people will come from the east and the west and sit down in the kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be there, but the unbelieving Jews who reject Christ as their Messiah uh, will not be in the kingdom. And so the kingdom cannot consist merely uh, of ethnic Israel, uh, not in this sense in which Jesus is speaking about it. And so we begin to see that the, the kingdom uh, is uh, a spiritual reality. It's the kingdom of heaven, as it is being called here throughout uh, the book of Matthew. How about a fun one? Turn over to Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And in Matthew chapter 11, somebody read for us 
verses 11 and 12. Okay, so we have John the Baptist, the greatest born among women, but whoever is least in the kingdom will be greater than John. So the, king, the reality of the kingdom uh, is somehow flipping things on its head uh, as far as from how we would view things from an earthly perspective. And then verse 12, uh, <laughs> suffers violence and the violent take it by force? What is that about? Anybody read... Pilgrim's Progress, and remember how Bunyan describes this in Pilgrim's Progress, when Pilgrim is in the interpreter's house, and he's seeing different things. One of the things he sees is a man with armor on and a sword fighting his way into the kingdom. If we look at the parallel passage for this over in Luke, Luke chapter 16 Verse 16 says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. So the idea is is that it's not necessarily easy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul will later tell the elders from the Ephesian church that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is something that is turning our ideas of greatness upside down. It's something that comes in the future and something that requires suffering or sacrifice in order to enter it. Uh, so, interesting. As we continue through Matthew, we get to chapter 13. We, we're not going to read all these tonight. We'll look at them at some point uh, in the coming weeks. But uh, we have a whole series of parables that Jesus tells uh, in Matthew 13 where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And so he begins to describe some aspects of the kingdom for us. And then one of the key passages concerning the kingdom is in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they've given him the the rumors that are flying around. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his great confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Christ responds to Peter. And one of the things he says, we're familiar with the passage, he talks about how he is going to build his church. And then in verse 19 he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so we can see that there is a very significant uh, relationship here between the church and the kingdom. Christ is going to build his church and he's giving the keys of the kingdom to the church via the apostles. And and we understand this to be about church discipline, uh, that whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. The relationship between the earthly church, the visible church, and the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual reality is so close that if the earthly church led by the spirit makes decisions concerning church discipline marking someone that sort of thing that it 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 carries weight 
in the spiritual kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is not some spiritual reality that's just off in the ether that we have to look forward to. That It's a spiritual reality that is tied to our physical reality even now uh, as members of the church. Now, interestingly, when we move out of Matthew uh, into the rest of the New Testament, we immediately see Mark uh, echoing some of the same exact scenes that we've seen in Matthew uh, with John the Baptist, for instance, uh, baptizing and preaching or Jesus beginning his uh, ministry. And, And as he begins his Galilean ministry, we see Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark is using the kingdom of God in exactly the same way uh, that Matthew used the kingdom of heaven. So there's no uh, distinction to be made, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. Uh, I've heard people try and make distinctions between those two in the past. It's one and the same thing. There are some interesting passages uh, in the book of Mark relating to the kingdom. In Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, the saints are to inherit the kingdom. It's something that will become a reality at some future point. And yet, Jesus says there are some who were standing there at that moment who would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom come with power. And so there's some sense in which the kingdom came at some point uh, during the life of the apostles in a way that it had not been present before then. And yet, there's still more to come in the future. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, institutes the Lord's Supper, and then tells them, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So there's some future day coming when Christ will again partake with his people of a meal, of a feast in the kingdom of God. In Luke's gospel, we are told to preach the kingdom. We are told to seek the kingdom. We are told, interestingly, at one point in Luke, that the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, Whatever that is supposed to mean, we're going to discuss all these things in the coming weeks. So one of the things I asked earlier was, what kind, how would we define the kingdom? What is it? And one of the answers was, it's a spiritual kingdom. And for sure, we can say that. The angels are part of the kingdom of God. Deceased saints who are no longer embodied at this moment are part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. God's throne is in heaven. It's a spiritual reality. And yet, we wouldn't say that God's reign or God's rule is limited only uh, to the spiritual aspects of our lives. God reigns even over the physical aspects of our lives. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God's reign, his dominion in his kingdom is not limited merely to the spiritual realm. It extends to the physical realm. Specifically, Paul's writing to the church. 
every aspect of our lives, spiritual and physical, is under the dominion of God as citizens of the kingdom. Jesus told us in John chapter 3 uh, that in order to see the kingdom, we must be born again, born of the spirit, not just of the flesh. Uh, I mentioned this earlier in Acts 14. Paul told the Ephesian elders that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Revelation chapter 14, oh, sorry, Romans chapter 14. I have to get my abbreviations straight here in my notes. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there are, you know, we're told on the one hand, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. God reigns over us in every way, every aspect of our lives, and yet eating and drinking are not the substance of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's substance is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, So it is a spiritual kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15.50, we're told that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Colossians 1, verse 3, we are told that he has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So that's an already something that has already happened when we have been redeemed, when we have been regenerated and come to faith in Christ. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, Peter writes and says, For Well, back up to verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, it seems to be something that happens in the future. And we can see in Revelation chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 The seventh trumpet is sounded by the angel and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So there are kingdoms of this world that at some point Christ reigns over them in a very real way. He reigns over them now, right? He can raise up who he wills to be kingdom a king in whatever kingdom, to be president of the United States. But at some point in the future, Christ will rule over them uh, in a a much more concrete way than he does even now. If we go back to the Gospel of John, when Christ was on trial before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate asks him uh, if he is a king and asks him about his kingdom, Pilate answered and said, Am I a Jew, your own nation, and the chief priests have delivered you to me? What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. In the future, it will be, but not yet. And so we have this thing that we call You'll hear theologians use this term, the already but not yet of the kingdom. 
There are certain aspects of the kingdom that we already experience. It has come in power. Uh, we are citizens of the kingdom, and yet it is not yet fully consummated. And so we have a day to look forward to that. But we have to figure out how to live now in the midst of this. And so that's what this study, I hope, is going to do for us in the coming weeks uh, as we look at what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven living amidst the kingdoms of the earth. And we're going to deal with the fact that believers, saints in the church, are in some special way part of the kingdom of God. And yet, we're also part of all people. And so God rules over all people, but he rules over his church in a special way. And so we have what might be called, and so we would say here, believers or the church are here in both camps, right? And so what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks is this here, which we might call the common kingdom that God rules over, and here, that includes believers as well, this would be specifically the kingdom of God. And we're living in the midst of that. And so this is a doctrine that is known in uh, historic circles as two kingdoms doctrine, that there are two kingdoms, both belonging to God, one of which he rules over by means of the Noahic covenant, among other things, and then there is the church or the, the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual kingdom of God, which he rules over by means of the new covenant. And believers are members of both of those kingdoms. And so that's where a lot of the tension comes in our lives is how do we live our lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, members of the new covenant, in the world governed by the Novaic covenant, governed by secular civic governments established by God to which we are supposed to be subject and yet they may not be obeying God uh, in ways that we think they ought to. And so how do we live our lives? How do we work our vocations? How do we engage the culture around us? And so these are some of the things we're going to look at in the coming weeks. Next week, I want to look particularly at uh, the Noahic covenant and God's rule of the common kingdom. And then after that, we will begin to look more specifically at our lives as citizens of the heavenly kingdom and how we live in the midst of the world. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer as we close.